Welcome to the 52nd reading of the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 4, Chapter 17, Section 31. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 31. They are greatly mistaken in imagining that there is no presence of the flesh of Christ in the supper, unless it be placed in the bread. They thus leave nothing for the secret operation of the Spirit, which unites Christ himself to us. Christ does not seem to them to be present unless he descends to us as if we did not equally gain his presence when he raises us to himself. The only question, therefore, is as to the mode, they placing Christ in the bread, while we deem it unlawful to draw him down from heaven. Which of the two is more correct, let the reader judge. Only have done with the calumny that Christ is withdrawn from his supper, if he lurk not under the covering of bread. For seeing this mystery is heavenly, there is no necessity to bring Christ on the earth, that he may be connected with us. Section 32 now, should anyone ask me as to the mode, I will not be ashamed to confess that it is too high a mystery either for my mind to comprehend or my words to express, and to speak more plainly, I rather feel than understand it. The truth of God, therefore, in which I can safely rest, I here embrace without controversy. He declares that his flesh is the meat, his blood the drink of my soul. I give my soul to him to be fed with such food. In his sacred supper he bids me take, eat, and drink his body and blood under the symbols of bread and wine. I have no doubt that he will truly give, and I receive. Only I reject the absurdities which appear to be unworthy of the heavenly majesty of Christ, and are inconsistent with the reality of his human nature, since they must also be repugnant to the word of God, which teaches both that Christ was received into the glory of the heavenly kingdom, so as to be exalted above all the circumstances of the world. Luke 24, verse 26, and, no less carefully, ascribes to him the properties belonging to a true human nature. This ought not to seem incredible or contradictory to reason, because as the whole kingdom of Christ is spiritual, so whatever he does in his church is not to be tested by the wisdom of this world. Or, to use the words of Augustine, quote, This mystery is performed by man like the others, but in a divine manner, and on earth, but in a heavenly manner, unquote. Such, I say, is the corporeal presence which the nature of the sacrament requires, and which we say is here displayed in such power and efficacy, that it not only gives our minds undoubted assurance of eternal life, but also secures the immortality of our flesh, since it is now quickened by his immortal flesh, and in a manner shines in his immortality. Those who are carried beyond this with their hyperboles do nothing more by their extravagancies than obscure the plain and simple truth. 
If anyone is not yet satisfied, I would have him here to consider with himself that we are speaking of this sacrament, every part of which ought to have reference to faith. Now by participation of the body, as we have explained, we nourish faith not less richly and abundantly than do those who drag Christ himself from heaven. Still, I am free to confess that that mixture or transfusion of the flesh of Christ with our soul, which they teach, I repudiate, because it is enough for us that Christ, out of the substance of his flesh, breathes life into our souls, nay, diffuses his own life into us, though the real flesh of Christ does not enter us. I may add that there can be no doubt that the analogy of faith by which Paul enjoins us to test every interpretation of Scripture is clearly with us in this matter, that those who oppose the truth so clear consider to what standard of faith they conform themselves. Quote, every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. Unquote. 1 John 4, verse 23, and 2 John, verse 7. These men, though they disguise the fact, or perceive it not, rob him of his flesh. Section 33. The same view must be taken of communion, which, according to them, has no existence, unless they swallow the flesh of Christ under the bread. But no slight insult is offered to the Spirit if we refuse to believe that it is by his incomprehensible agency that we communicate in the body and blood of Christ. Nay, if the nature of the mystery as delivered to us, and known to the ancient church for four hundred years, had been considered as it deserves, there was more than enough to satisfy us. The door would have been shut against many disgraceful errors. These have kindled up fearful dissensions by which the church, both anciently and in our own times, has been miserably vexed. Curious men insisting on an extravagant mode of presence to which Scripture gives no countenance and, for a matter thus foolishly and rashly devised, they keep up a turmoil as if the including of Christ under the bread were, so to speak, the beginning and the end of piety. It was of primary importance to know how the body of Christ once delivered to us becomes ours, and how we become partakers of his shed blood, because this is to possess the whole of Christ crucified, so as to enjoy all his blessings. But overlooking these points in which there was so much importance, nay, neglecting and almost suppressing them, they occupy themselves only with this one perplexing question. How is the body of Christ hidden under the bread or under the tyrants of bread? They falsely pretend that all which we teach concerning spiritual eating is opposed to true and what they call real eating, since we have respect only to the mode of eating. This, according to them, is carnal, since they include Christ under the bread, but according to us is spiritual, inasmuch as the sacred agency of the Spirit is the bond of our union with Christ. Not better founded is the other objection that we attend only to the fruit or effect which believers receive from eating the flesh of Christ. We formerly said that Christ himself is the matter of the supper, and that the effect follows from this, that by the sacrifice of his death our sins are expiated, by his blood we are washed, and by his resurrection we are raised to the hope of life in heaven. But a foolish imagination of which Lombard was the author perverts their minds while they think that the sacrament is the eating of the flesh of Christ. His words are, quote, The sacrament and not the thing are the forms of bread and wine. The sacrament and the thing are the flesh and blood of Christ. The thing and not the sacrament is his mystical flesh, unquote. Again, a little after, quote, The thing signified and contained is the proper flesh of Christ. The thing signified and not contained is his mystical body, unquote. To this distinction between the flesh of Christ and the power of nourishing which it possesses, I assent. But his maintaining it to be a sacrament, and a sacrament contained under the bread, 
is an error not to be tolerated. Hence has arisen that false interpretation of sacramental eating, because it was imagined that even the wicked and profane, however much alienated from Christ, eat his body. But the very flesh of Christ and the mystery of the supper is no less a spiritual matter than eternal salvation. Whence we infer that all who are devoid of the Spirit of Christ can no more eat the flesh of Christ than drink wine that has no savor. Certainly Christ is shamefully lacerated when his body, as lifeless and without any vigor, is prostituted to unbelievers. This is clearly repugnant to his words, quote, He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him, unquote. John 6, verse 56. They object that he is not there speaking of sacramental eating. This I admit, provided that they will not ever and anon stumble on this stone, that his flesh itself is eaten without any benefit. I should like to know how they can find it after they have eaten. Here, in my opinion, they will find no outlet. But they object that the ingratitude of man cannot in any respect detract from or interfere with faith and the promises of God. I admit and hold that the power of the sacrament remains entire, however the wicked may labor with all their might to annihilate it. Still, it is one thing to be offered, another to be received. Christ gives this spiritual food and holds forth this spiritual drink to all. Some eat eagerly, others superciliously reject it. Will their rejection cause the meat and drink to lose their nature? They will say that this similitude supports their opinion, viz., that the flesh of Christ, though it be without taste, is still flesh. But I deny that it can be eaten without the taste of faith, or, if it is more agreeable to speak with Augustine, I deny that men carry away more from the sacrament than they collect in the vessel of faith. Thus nothing is detracted from the sacrament, nay, its reality, and efficacy remain unimpaired, although the wicked, after externally partaking of it, go away empty. If, again, they object that it derogates from the expression, quote, this is my body, unquote, if the wicked receive corruptible bread and nothing besides, it is easy to answer that God wills not that his truth should be recognized in the mere reception, but in the constancy of his goodness, while he is prepared to perform, nay, liberally offers to the unworthy what they reject, the integrity of the sacrament, an integrity which the whole world cannot violate, lies here, that the flesh and the blood of Christ are not less truly given to the unworthy than to the elect believers of God, and yet it is true that just as the rain falling on the hard rock runs away because it cannot penetrate, so the wicked, by their hardness, repel the grace of God and prevent it from reaching them. We may add that it is no more possible to receive Christ without faith than it is for seed to germinate in the fire. They ask how Christ can have come for the condemnation of some unless they unworthily receive him. But this is absurd, since we nowhere read that they bring death upon themselves by receiving Christ unworthily, but by rejecting him. They are not aided by the parable in which Christ says that the seed which fell among the thorns sprung up, but was afterwards choked. Matthew 13, verse 7, because he is there speaking of the effect of a temporary faith, a faith which those who place Judas in this respect on a footing with Peter do not think necessary to the eating of the flesh and the drinking of the blood of Christ. Nay, their error is refuted by the same parable, when Christ says that some seed fell upon the wayside, and some on stony ground, and yet neither took root. Hence it follows that the hardness of believers is an obstacle which prevents Christ from reaping them. All who would have our salvation to be promoted by this sacrament will find nothing more appropriate than to conduct believers to the fountain, that they may draw life from the Son of God. 
The dignity is amply enough commanded when we hold that it is a help by which we may be engrafted into the body of Christ, or, already engrafted, may be more and more united to him until the union is completed in heaven. They object that Paul could not have made them guilty of the body and blood of the Lord if they had not partaken of them. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 I answer that they were not condemned for having eaten, but only for having profaned the ordinance by trampling underfoot the pledge, which they ought to have reverently received, the pledge of sacred union with God. Section 34 Moreover, as among ancient writers, Augustine especially maintained this head of doctrine, that the grace figured by the sacraments is not impaired or made void by the infidelity or malice of men. It will be useful to prove clearly from his words how ignorantly and erroneously those who cast forth the body of Christ to be eaten by dogs rest them to their present purpose. Sacramental eating, according to them, is that by which the wicked receive the body and blood of Christ without the agency of the Spirit, or any gracious effect. Augustine, on the contrary, prudently pondering the expression, quote, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, unquote, John 6, verse 54, says, quote, That is the virtue of the sacrament, and not merely the visible sacrament, the sacrament of him who eats inwardly, not of him who eats outwardly, or merely with the teeth. Unquote. Hence he at length concludes that the sacrament of this thing, that is, the unity of the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper, is set before some for life, before others for destruction. While the matter itself, of which it is the sacrament, is to all for life, to none for destruction, whoever may have been the partaker. Lest anyone should hear cavil that by thing is not meant body, but the grace of the Spirit, which may be separated from it, he dissipates these mists by the antithetical epithets, visible and invisible. For the body of Christ cannot be included under the former. Hence it follows that unbelievers communicate only in the visible symbol. And the better to remove all doubt after saying that this bread requires an appetite in the inner man, he adds, quote, Moses and Aaron and Phineas and many others who ate manna pleased God. Why? Because the visible food they understood spiritually, hungered for spiritually, tasted spiritually, and feasted on spiritually. We too in the present day have received visible food, but the sacrament is one thing, the virtue of the sacrament is another, unquote. A little after he says, Quote, and hence, he who remains not in Christ, and in whom Christ remains not without doubt, neither spiritually eats his flesh, nor drinks his blood, though with his teeth he may carnally and visibly press the symbol of his body and blood. Unquote. Again, we are told that the visible sign is opposed to spiritual eating. This refutes the error that the invisible body of Christ is sacramentally eaten in reality, although not spiritually. We are told also that nothing is given to the impure and profane beyond the visible taking of the sign. Hence is celebrated saying that the other disciples ate bread which was the Lord, whereas Judas ate the bread of the Lord. By this he clearly excludes unbelievers from participation in his body and blood. He has no other meaning when he says, quote, Why do you wonder that the bread of Christ was given to Judas, though he consigned him to the devil? when you see, on the contrary, that a messenger of the devil was given to Paul to perfect him in Christ, unquote. He indeed says elsewhere that the bread of the supper was the body of Christ to those to whom Paul said, quote, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, and that it does not follow that they received nothing because they received unworthily, unquote. But in what sense he says this, he explains more fully in another passage. 
for undertaking professedly to explain how the wicked and profane who with the mouth profess the faith of Christ but in act deny him eat the body of Christ and indeed refuting the opinion of some who thought that they ate not only sacramentally but really he says quote, neither can they be said to eat the body of Christ because they are not to be accounted among the members of Christ for not to mention other reasons they cannot be at the same time the members of Christ and the members of a harlot in fine when Christ himself says air quote, he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him close inner quote John 6 verse 56 he says that it is to eat the body of Christ not sacramentally but in reality it is to abide in Christ that Christ may abide in him for it is just as if he had said that not him who abides not in me and in whom I abide not say or think that he eats my body or drinks my blood unquote let the reader attempt the antithesis between eating sacramentally and eating really and there will be no doubt the same thing he confirms not less clearly in these words quote, prepare not the jaws but the heart for which alone the supper is appointed we believe in Christ when we receive him in faith in receiving we know what we think we receive a small portion but our heart is filled it is not therefore that which is seen but that which is believed that feeds here also he restricts what the wicked take to be the visible sign and shows that the only way of receiving Christ is by faith so also in another passage declaring distinctly that the good and the bad communicate by signs he excludes the latter from the true eating of the flesh of Christ for had they received the reality he would not have been altogether silent as to a matter which was pertinent to the case in another passage speaking of eating and the fruit of it he thus concludes quote, then will the body and blood of Christ be life to each if that which is visibly taken in the sacrament is in reality spiritually eaten spiritually drunk unquote. let those therefore who make unbelievers partakers of the flesh and blood of Christ if they would agree with Augustine set before us the visible body of Christ since according to him the whole truth is spiritual and certainly his words imply that sacramental eating when unbelief excludes the entrance of the reality is only equivalent to visible or external eating but if the body of Christ may be truly and yet not spiritually eaten what could he mean when he elsewhere says quote you are not to eat this body which you see nor to drink the blood which will be shed by those who are to crucify me I have committed a certain sacrament to you it is the spiritual meaning which will give you life unquote he certainly meant not to deny that the body offered in the supper is the same as that which Christ offered in sacrifice but he adverted to the mode of eating these that the body though received into the celestial glory breathes life into us by the secret energy of the spirit I admit indeed that he often uses the expression quote, that the body of Christ is eaten by unbelievers unquote. but he explains himself by adding quote, in the sacrament unquote and he elsewhere speaks of a spiritual eating in which our teeth do not chew grace and lest my opponent should say that I am trying to overwhelm them with the mass of my quotations I would ask how they get over this one sentence quote in the elect alone the sacraments effect what they figure unquote certainly they will not venture to deny that by the bread of the supper the body of Christ is figured hence it follows that the reprobate are not allowed to partake of it that Cyril did not think differently is clear from these words quote, as one is pouring melted wax on melted wax mixes the whole together 
So it is necessary when one receives the body and blood of the Lord to be conjoined with him that Christ may be found in him and he in Christ. Unquote. From these words I think it plain that there is no true and real eating by those who only eat the body of Christ sacramentally, saying the body cannot be separated from its virtue, and that the promises of God do not fail, though, while he ceases not to rain from heaven, rocks and stones are not penetrated by the moisture. Section 35. This consideration will easily dissuade us from that carnal adoration which some men have with perverse temerity, introduced into the sacrament, reasoning thus with themselves. If it is body, then it is also soul and divinity which go along with the body and cannot be separated from it, and therefore Christ must there be adored. First, if we deny their pretended concomitants, what will they do? For as they chiefly insist on the absurdity of separating the body of Christ from his soul and divinity, what sane and sober man can persuade himself that the body of Christ is Christ? They think that they completely establish this by their syllogisms. But since Christ speaks separately of his body and blood without describing the mode of his presence, how can they in a doubtful manner arrive at the certainty which they wish? What then? Should their consciences be at any time exercised with some more grievous apprehension, while they forthwith set them free and dissolve the apprehensions by their syllogisms? In other words, when they see that no certainty is to be obtained from the word of God in which alone our minds can rest, and without which they go astray the very first moment when they begin to reason, when they see themselves opposed by the doctrine and the practice of the apostles, and that they are supported by no authority but their own, how will they feel? To such feelings other sharp stings will be added. What? Was it a matter of little moment to worship God under this form, without any express injunction? In a matter relating to the true worship of God, were we thus lightly to act without one word of Scripture? Had all their thoughts been kept in due subjection to the word of God, they certainly would have listened to what he himself has said, quote, take, eat, and drink, unquote, and obey the command by which he enjoins us to receive the sacrament, not worship it. Those who receive without adoration as commanded by God are secure that they deviate not from the command, and commencing any work, nothing is better than this security. They have the example of the apostles, of whom we read not, that they prostrated themselves and worshipped, but that they sat down, took, and ate. They have the practice of the apostolic church, where, as Luke relates, believers communicated not in adoration, but in the breaking of bread. Acts 2, verse 42. They have the doctrine of the apostles as taught to the Corinthian church by Paul, who declares that what he delivered he had received of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Section 36. The object of these remarks is to lead pious readers to reflect how dangerous it is in matters of such difficulty to wander from the simple word of God to the dreams of our own brain. What has been said above should free us from all scruple in this matter. That the pious soul may duly apprehend Christ in the sacrament, it must rise to heaven. But if the office of the sacrament is to aid the infirmity of the human mind, assisting it in rising upwards, so as to perceive the high spiritual mysteries, those who stop short at the external sign stray from the right path of seeking Christ. What then? Can we deny that the worship is superstitious when men prostrate themselves before bread, that they may therein worship Christ? The Council of Nice undoubtedly intended to meet this evil when it forbade us to give humble heed to the visible signs. 
and for no other reason was it formerly the custom previous to consecration to call aloud upon the people to raise their hearts, sir some corda. Scripture itself also, besides carefully narrating the ascension of Christ, by which he withdrew his bodily presence from our eye and company, that it might make us abandon all carnal thoughts of him, whenever it makes mention of him, enjoins us to raise our minds upwards, and seek him in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Colossians 3, verse 2. According to this rule, we should rather have adored him spiritually in the heavenly glory, than devised that perilous species of adoration replete with growth and the carnal ideas of God. Those, therefore, who devised the adoration of the sacrament, not only dreamed it of themselves without any authority from Scripture, or no mention of it can be shown, it would not have been omitted had it been agreeable to God, but, disregarding Scripture, forsook the living God, and fabricated a God for themselves after the lust of their own hearts. For what is idolatry if it is not to worship the gifts instead of the giver? Here the sin is twofold. The honor robbed from God is transferred to the creature, and God, moreover, is dishonored by the pollution and profanation of his own goodness, while his holy sacrament is converted into an execrable idol. Let us, on the contrary, that we may not fall into the same pit, wholly confine our eyes, ears, hearts, minds, and tongues to the sacred doctrine of God. For this is the school of the Holy Spirit, that best of masters in which such progress is made that while nothing is to be acquired anywhere else, we must willingly be ignorant of whatever is not there taught. Section 37. Then, as superstition, when once it has passed the proper bounds, has no end to its errors, man went much farther, for they devised rites altogether alien from the institution of the supper, and to such a degree that they paid divine honors to the sign. They say that their veneration is paid to Christ. First, if this were done in the supper, I would say that that adoration only is legitimate, which stops not at the sign, but rises to Christ, sitting in heaven. Now, under what pretext do they say that they honor Christ in that bread when they have no promise of this nature? They consecrate the host, as they call it, and carry it about in solemn show, and formally exhibit it to be admired, reverenced, and invoked. I ask by what virtue they think it duly consecrated. They will quote the words, quote, This is my body, unquote. I, on the contrary, will object that it was at the same time said, quote, Take, eat, unquote. Nor will I count the other passage as nothing, for I hold that since the promise is annexed to the command, the former is so included under the latter that it cannot possibly be separated from it. This will be made clearer by an example. God gave a command when he said, quote, Call upon me, unquote, and added a promise. Quote, I will deliver thee, unquote. Psalm 50, verse 15. Should anyone invoke Peter or Paul and found on this promise, will not all explain that he does it in error? And what else, pray, do those do who, disregarding the command to eat, fasten on a mutilated promise, quote, This is my body, unquote, that they may pervert it to rights alien from the institution of Christ. Let us remember, therefore, that this promise has been given to those who observe the command connected with it, that those who transfer the sacrament to another end have no countenance from the word of God. We formerly showed how the mystery of the sacred supper contributes to our faith in God, but since the Lord not only reminds us of this great gift of his goodness, as we formerly explained, but passes it, as it were, from hand to hand, and urges us to recognize it, he at the same time admonishes us not to be ungrateful for the kindness thus bestowed, but rather to proclaim it with such praise as is meet, and celebrate it with thanksgiving. 
Accordingly, when he delivered the institution of the sacrament to the apostles, he taught them to do it in remembrance of him, which Paul interprets, quote, to show forth his death, unquote. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. And this is, that all should publicly and with one mouth confess that all our confidence of life and salvation is placed in our Lord's death, that we ourselves may glorify him by our confession, and by our example excite others also to give him glory. Here again we see that the aim of the sacrament is, namely, to keep us in remembrance of Christ's death. When we are ordered to show forth the Lord's death till he come again, all that is meant is that we should, with confession of the mouth, proclaim what our faith has recognized in the sacrament, viz., that the death of Christ is our life. This is the second use of the sacrament, and relates to outward confession. Section 38. Thirdly, the Lord intended it to be a kind of exhortation, than which no other could urge or animate us more strongly both to purity and holiness of life, and also to charity, peace, and concord. For the Lord there communicates his body so that he may become altogether one with us, and we with him. Moreover, since he has only one body of which he makes us all to be partakers, we must necessarily by this participation all become one body. This unity is represented by the bread which is exhibited in the sacrament. As it is composed of many grains, so mingled together that one cannot be distinguished from another, so ought our minds to be so cordially united as not to allow of any dissension or division. This I prefer giving in the words of Paul, quote, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread, unquote. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 15 and 16. We shall have profited admirably in the sacrament if the thought shall have been impressed and engraven on our minds that none of our brethren is hurt, despised, rejected, injured, or in any way offended without our at the same time hurting, despising, and injuring Christ, that we cannot have dissension with our brethren without at the same time dissenting from Christ, that we cannot love Christ without loving our brethren, that the same care we take of our own body we ought to take of that of our brethren, who are members of our body, that as no part of our body suffers pain without extending to the other parts, so every evil which our brother suffers ought to excite our compassion. Wherefore, Augustine not inappropriately often terms this sacrament the bond of charity. What stronger stimulus could be employed to excite mutual charity than when Christ, presenting himself to us, not only invites us by his example to give and devote ourselves mutually to each other, but inasmuch as he makes himself common to all, also makes us all to be one in him. Section 39. This most admirably confirms what I elsewhere said, viz., that there cannot be a right administration of the supper without the word. Any utility which we derive from the supper requires the word. Whether we are to be confirmed in faith, or exercised in confession, or aroused to duty, there is need of preaching. Nothing, therefore, can be more preposterous than to convert the supper into a dumb action. This is done under the tyranny of the Pope, the whole effect of consecration being made to depend on the intention of the priest, as if it in no way concerned the people, to whom especially the mystery ought to have been explained. This error has originated from not observing that those promises by which consecration is effected are intended not for the elements themselves, but for those who receive them. 
Christ does not address the bread and tell it to become his body, but bids his disciples eat and promises them the communion of his body and blood. And according to the arrangement which Paul makes, the promises are to be offered to believers along with the bread and the cup. Thus indeed it is. We are not to imagine some magical incantation and think it sufficient to mutter the words as if they were heard by the elements. But we are to regard those words as a living sermon, which is to edify the hearers, penetrate their minds, being impressed and seated in their hearts, and exert its efficacy in the fulfillment of that which it promises. For these reasons it is clear that the setting apart of the sacrament, as some insist, that an extraordinary distribution of it may be made to the sick, is useless. They will either receive it without hearing the words of the institution read, or the minister will conjoin the true explanation of the mystery with the sign. In the silent dispensation there is abuse and defect. If the promises are narrated and the mystery is expounded, that those who are to receive may receive with advantage, it cannot be doubted that this is the true consecration. What then becomes of that other consecration, the effect of which reaches even to the sick? But those who do so have the example of the early church. I confess it, but in so important a matter where error is so dangerous, nothing is safer than to follow the truth. Section 40 Moreover, as we see that the sacred bread of the Lord's Supper is spiritual food, is sweet and savory, not less than salutary to the pious worshippers of God, on tasting which they feel that Christ is their life, are disposed to give thanks, and exhorted to mutual love, so, on the other hand, it is converted into the most noxious poison to all whom it does not nourish, and confirm in the faith, nor urge to thanksgiving and charity. For just as corporeal food, when received into a stomach subject to morbid humors, becomes itself vitiated and corrupted, and rather hurts than nourishes, so this spiritual food also, if given to a soul polluted with malice and wickedness, plunges it into greater ruin, not indeed by any defect in the food, but because of the, quote, defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, unquote, Titus 1, verse 15, however much it may be sanctified by the blessing of the Lord. For as Paul says, quote, Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, unquote. Quote, Eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, unquote. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and 29. Are men of this description, who without any spark of faith, without any zeal for charity, rush forward like swine to seize the Lord's supper, do not at all discern the Lord's body? For inasmuch as they do not believe that body to be their life, they put every possible affront upon it, stripping it of all its dignity, and profane and contaminate it by so receiving. Inasmuch as while alienated and estranged from their brethren, they dare to mingle the sacred symbol of Christ's body with their dissensions. No thanks to them if the body of Christ is not rent and torn to pieces. Wherefore, they are justly held guilty of the body and blood of the Lord which, with sacrilegious impiety, they so vilely pollute. By this unworthy eating, they bring judgment on themselves. For while they have no faith in Christ, yet by receiving the sacrament, they profess to place their salvation only in Him, and abjure all other confidence. Wherefore, they themselves are their own accusers. They bear witness against themselves. They seal their own condemnation. Next, being divided and separated by hatred and ill will from their brethren, that is, from the members of Christ, they have no part in Christ, and yet they declare that the only safety is to communicate with Christ and be united to him. For this reason, Paul commands a man to examine himself before he eats of that bread and drinks of that cup, 
1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. By this, as I understand, he means that each individual should descend into himself and consider first whether with inward confidence of heart he leads on the salvation obtained by Christ and with confession of the mouth acknowledges it, and, secondly, whether with zeal for purity and holiness he aspires to imitate Christ, whether, after his example, he is prepared to give himself to his brethren and to hold himself in common with those with whom he has Christ in common, whether, as he himself is regarded by Christ, he in his turn regards all his brethren as members of his body are, like his members, desires to cherish, defend, and assist them, not that the duties of faith and charity can now be perfected in us, but because it behoves us to contend and seek with all our heart daily to increase our faith. Section 41. In seeking to prepare for eating worthily, men have often dreadfully harassed and tortured miserable consciences, and yet have in no degree attained the end. They have said that those who eat worthily are in a state of grace. Being in a state of grace, they have interpreted to be pure and free from all sin. By this definition, all the men that ever have been and are upon the earth were debarred from the use of the sacrament. For if we are to seek our worthiness from ourselves, it is all over with us. Only this bare and fatal ruin await us. Though we struggle to the utmost, we will not only make no progress, but then be most unworthy after we have labored most to make ourselves worthy. To cure this ulcer, they have devised a mode of procuring worthiness. These, after having, as far as we can, made an examination and taken an account of all our actions to expiate our unworthiness by contrition, confession, and satisfaction. Of the nature of this expiation we have spoken at the proper place. See Book 3, Chapter 4, Sections 2, 17, and 27. As far as regards our present object, I say that such things give poor and evanescent comfort to alarmed and downcast consciences, struck with terror at their sins. For if the Lord, by his prohibition, admits none to partake of his supper but the righteous and innocent, every man would require to be cautious before feeling secure of that righteousness of his own, which he is told that God requires. But how are we to be assured that those who have done what in them lay have discharged their duty to God? Even were we assured of this, who would venture to assure himself that he had done what in him lay? Thus, there being no certain security for our worthiness, access to the supper should always be excluded by the fearful interdict. Quote, he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. Unquote. Section 42. It is now easy to judge what is the nature and who is the author of that doctrine which prevails in the papacy, and which, by its inhuman austerity, deprives and robs wretched sinners, oppressed with sorrow and trembling, of the consolation of this sacrament, a sacrament in which all that is delightful in the gospel was set before them. Certainly the devil could have no shorter method of destroying men than by thus infatuating them and so excluding them from the taste and savor of this food with which their most merciful Father in heaven had been pleased to feed them. Therefore, lest we should rush over such a precipice, let us remember that this sacred feast is medicine to the sick, comfort to the sinner, and bounty to the poor, while to the healthy, the righteous, and the rich. If any such could be found, it would be of no value, for while Christ is therein given us for food, we perceive that without him we fail, pine, and waste away, just as hunger destroys the vigor of the body. Next, as he is given for life, we perceive that without him we are certainly dead. Wherefore, the best and only worthiness which we can bring to God is to offer him our own vileness. 
and, if I may so speak, unworthiness, that his mercy may make us worthy to despond in ourselves, that we may be consoled in him, to humble ourselves, that we may be elevated by him, to accuse ourselves, that we may be justified by him, to aspire, moreover, to the unity which he recommends in the supper, and that he makes us all one in himself, to desire to have all one soul, one heart, one tongue. If we ponder and meditate on these things, we may be shaken, but will never be overwhelmed by such considerations as these. How shall we, who are devoid of all good, polluted by the defilements of sin, and half dead, worthily eat the body of the Lord? We shall rather consider that we, who are poor, are coming to a benevolent giver, sick to a physician, sinful to the author of righteousness, in fine, dead to him who gives life. That worthiness which is commanded by God consists especially in faith, which places all things in Christ, nothing in ourselves, and in charity, charity which, though imperfect, it may be sufficient to offer to God, that he may increase it, since it cannot be fully rendered. Some, concurring with us in holding that worthiness consists in faith and charity, have widely erred in regard to the measure of worthiness, demanding a perfection of faith to which nothing can be added, and a charity equivalent to that which Christ manifested towards us. And in this way, just as the other class, they debar all men from access to the sacred feast. For where there be well founded, every one who receives must receive unworthily, since all without exception are guilty and chargeable with imperfection. And certainly it were too stupid, not to say idiotical, to require to the receiving of the sacrament a perfection which would render the sacrament vain and superfluous, because it was not instituted for the perfect, but for the infirm and weak, to stir up, excite, stimulate, exercise the feeling of faith and charity, and at the same time correct the deficiency of both. Section 43 in regard to the external form of the ordinance, whether or not believers are to take into their hands and divide among themselves, or each is to eat what is given to him, whether they are to return the cup to the deacon or hand it to their neighbor, whether the bread is to be leavened or unleavened, and the wine to be red or white, is of no consequence. These things are indifferent and left free to the church, though it is certain that it was the custom of the ancient church for all to receive into their hand. And Christ said, quote, Take this and divide it among yourselves. Unquote. Luke 22, verse 17. History relates that leavened and ordinary bread was used before the time of Alexander, the Bishop of Rome, who was the first that was delighted with unleavened bread. For what reason I see not, unless it was to draw the wondering eyes of the populace by the novelty of the spectacle, more than to train them in sound religion. I appeal to all who have the least zeal for piety, whether they do not evidently perceive both how much more brightly the glory of God is here displayed, and how much more abundant spiritual consolation is felt by believers than in these rigid and histrionic follies, which have no other use than to impose on the gazing populace. They call it restraining the people by religion, when stupid and infatuated they are drawn hither and thither by superstition. Should anyone choose to defend such inventions by antiquity, I am not unaware how ancient is the use of chrism and exorcism in baptism, and how, not long after the age of the apostles, the supper was tainted with adulteration. Such indeed is the forwardness of human confidence, which cannot restrain itself, but is always thwarting and wantoning in the mysteries of God. But let us remember that God sets so much value on obedience to his word, that by it he would have us to judge his angels and the whole world. All this mass of ceremonies being abandoned, the sacrament might be celebrated in the most becoming manner if it were dispensed to the church very frequently, at least once a week. 
The commencement should be with public prayer. Next, a sermon should be delivered. Then the minister, having placed bread and wine on the table, should read the institution of the supper. He should next explain the promises which are therein given, and at the same time keep back from communion all those who are debarred by the prohibition of the Lord. He should afterwards pray that the Lord, with the kindness with which he has bestowed this sacred food upon us, would also form and instruct us to receive it with faith and gratitude, and, as we are of ourselves unworthy, would make us worthy of the feast by his mercy. Here either a psalm should be sung, or something read, while the faithful, in order, communicate at the sacred feast, the minister breaking the bread and giving it to the people. The supper being ended, an exhortation should be given to sincere faith and confession of faith to charity and the lives becoming Christians. Lastly, thanks should be offered and the praises of God should be sung. This being done, the church should be dismissed in peace. Section 44. What we have hitherto said of the sacrament abundantly shows that it was not instituted to be received once a year, and that perfunctorily, as is now commonly the custom but that all Christians might have it in frequent use and frequently call to mind the sufferings of Christ, thereby sustaining and confirming their faith, stirring themselves up to sing the praises of God and proclaim His goodness, cherishing and testifying towards each other that mutual charity, the bond of which we see in the unity of the body of Christ. As often as we communicate in the symbol of our Savior's body, as if a pledge were given and received, we mutually bind ourselves to all the offices of love, that none of us may do anything to offend his brother or omit anything by which he can assist him when necessity demands and opportunity occurs. That such was the practice of the apostolic church, we are informed by Luke in the Acts when he says that, quote, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers, unquote, Acts 2, verse 42. Thus we ought always to provide that no meeting of the church is held without the word, prayer, the dispensation of the supper, and alms. We may gather from Paul that this was the order observed by the Corinthians, and it is certain that this was the practice many ages after. Hence, by the ancient canons which are attributed to Anacletus and Calixtus, after the consecration was made, all were to communicate who did not wish to be without the pale of the church and in those ancient canons which bear the name of apostolical, it is said that those who continue not to the end and partake not of the sacred communion are to be corrected as causing disquiet to the church. In the council of Antioch it was decreed that those who enter the church hear the scriptures and abstain from communion are to be removed from the church until they amend their fault. And although in the first council of Toulouse this was mitigated, or at least stated in milder terms, yet there also it was decreed that those who, after hearing the sermon, never communicated, were to be admonished, and if they still abstained after admonition, were to be excluded. Section 45. By these enactments, holy men wished to retain and ensure the use of frequent communion, as handed down by the apostles themselves and which, while it was most salutary to believers, they saw gradually falling into desuetude by the negligence of the people. Of his own age, Augustine testifies, quote, The sacrament of the unity of our Lord's body is, in some places, provided daily, and in others, at certain intervals, at the Lord's table. And at that table some partake to life, and others to destruction, unquote. And in the first epistle to Januarius, he says, quote, Some communicate daily in the body and blood of the Lord, Others receive it on certain days. In some places, not a day intervenes on which it is not offered. In others, it is offered only on the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. In others, on the Lord's Day only. Unquote. 
But since, as we have said, the people were sometimes remiss, holy men urged them with severe rebukes that they might not seem to connive at their sluggishness. Of this we have an example in Chrysostom on the epistle to the Ephesians. Quote, it was not said to him who dishonored the feast, Why have you not taken your seat? Quote, but how camest thou in? Close quote. Matthew 22, verse 12. Whoever partakes not of the sacred rites is wicked and impudent in being present. Should anyone who was invited to a feast come in, wash his hands, take his seat, and seem to prepare to eat, and thereafter taste nothing, would he not, I ask, insult both the feast and the entertainer? So you, standing among those who prepare themselves by prayer to take the sacred food, profess to be one of the number by the mere fact of your not going away, and yet you do not partake. Would it not have been better not to have made your appearance? I am unworthy, you say. Then neither were you worthy of the communion of the prayer, which is the preparation for taking the sacred mystery. Unquote. Section 46. Most assuredly, the custom which prescribes communion once a year is an invention of the devil, by what instrumentality soever it may have been introduced. They say that Zephyrinus was the author of the decree, though it is not possible to believe that it was the same as we now have it. It may be that as times then were, he did not, by his ordinance, consult ill for the church. For there cannot be a doubt that at that time the sacred supper was dispensed to the faithful at every meeting, nor can it be doubted that a great part of them communicated but as it scarcely ever happened that all could communicate at the same time, and it was necessary that those who were mingled with the profane and idolaters should testify their faith by some external symbol, this holy man, with a view to order and government, had appointed that day that on it the whole of Christendom might give a confession of their faith by partaking of the Lord's Supper. The ordinance of Zephyrinus, which was otherwise good, posterity perverted, when they made a fixed law of one communion in the year. The consequence is that almost all, when they have once communicated as if they were discharged as to all the rest of the year, sleep on secure. It ought to have been far otherwise. Each week, at least, the table of the Lord ought to have been spread for the company of Christians and the promises declared on which we might then spiritually feed. No one, indeed, ought to be forced, but all ought to be exhorted and stimulated. The torpor of the sluggish also ought to be rebuked that all, like persons famishing, should come to the beast. It was not without cause, therefore, I complained at the outset that this practice had been introduced by the wile of the devil, a practice which, in prescribing one day in the year, makes the whole year one of sloth. We see, indeed, that this perverse abuse had already crept in in the time of Chrysostom. But we also, at the same time, see how much it displeased him, for he complains in bitter terms in the passage which I lately quoted that there is so great an inequality in this matter that they did not approach often at other times of the year even when prepared, but only at Easter, though unprepared. Then he exclaims, quote, O custom, O presumption, in vain then is the daily oblation made, in vain do we stand at the altar, there is none who partakes along with us, unquote. So far as he from having approved the practice by interposing his authority to it. Section 47 from the same forge proceeded another constitution which snatched or robbed a half of the supper from the greater part of the people of God, namely, the symbol of blood, which interdicted to legs and profane, such are the titles which they give to God's heritage, became the peculiar possession of a few shaven and anointed individuals. The edict of the eternal God is that all are to drink. This an upstart dares to antiquate and abrogate by a new and contrary law, proclaiming that all are not to drink. 
and that such legislators may not seem to fight against their God without any ground, they make a pretext of the dangers which might happen if the sacred cup were given indiscriminately to all, as if these had not been observed and provided for by the eternal wisdom of God. And they reason acutely, forsooth, that the one is sufficient for the two. For if the body is, as they say, the whole Christ, you cannot be separated from his body, then the blood includes the body by concomitance. Here we see how far our sense accords with God, when to any extent whatever it begins to rage and wanton with loosened reins. The Lord, pointing to the bread, says, quote, This is my body, unquote. Then, pointing to the cup, he calls it his blood. The audacity of human reason objects and says, The bread is the blood, the wine is the body, as if the Lord had without reason distinguished his body from his blood, both by words and signs. And it had ever been heard that the body of Christ, or the blood, is called God and man. Certainly, if he had meant to designate himself holy, he might have said, It is I, according to the scriptural mode of expression, and not, quote, This is my body, unquote, quote, This is my blood, unquote. But wishing to succor the weakness of our faith, he placed the cup apart from the bread to show that he suffices not less for drink than for food. Now, if one part be taken away, we can only find the half of the elements in what remains. Therefore, though it were true, as they pretend, that the blood is in the bread, and on the other hand the body in the cup, by concomitance, yet they deprive the pious of that confirmation of faith which Christ delivered as necessary. Bidding adieu, therefore, to their subtleties, let us retain the advantage which, by the ordinance of Christ, is obtained by a double pledge. Section 48 I am aware, indeed, how the ministers of Satan, whose usual practice is to hold the scriptures in derision, hear cavil. First, they allege that from a simple fact we are not to draw a rule, which is to be perpetually obligatory on the church. But they state an untruth when they call it a simple fact. For Christ not only gave the cup, but appointed that the apostles should do so in future. For his words contain the command, quote, Drink ye all of it, unquote. And Paul relates that it was so done, and recommends it as a fixed institution, Another subterfuge is that the apostles alone were admitted by Christ or take of this sacred supper because he had already selected and chosen them to the priesthood. I wish they would answer the five following questions which they cannot evade and which easily refute them and their lies. First, by what oracle was this solution so much at variance with the word of God revealed to them? Scripture mentions twelve who sat down with Jesus, but it does not so derogate from the dignity of Christ as to call them priests. Of this appellation we shall afterwards speak in its own place. Although he then gave to twelve, he commanded them to, quote, do this, unquote. In other words, to distribute thus among themselves. Secondly, why during that purer age, from the days of the apostles downward for a thousand years, did all, without exception, partake of both symbols? Did the primitive church not know who the guests were whom Christ would have admitted to his supper? It were the most shameless impudence to carp and quibble here. We have extant ecclesiastical histories. We have the writings of the fathers, which furnish clear proofs of this fact. Quote, the flesh, unquote, says Tertullian, quote, feeds on the body and blood of Christ, that the soul may be satiated by God, unquote. Quote, how, unquote, says Ambrose Theodosius, quote, will you receive the sacred body of the Lord with such hands? How will you have the boldness to put the cup of precious blood to your lips, unquote? Jerome speaks of, quote, the priests who perform the Eucharist and distribute the Lord's blood to the people, unquote. Chrysostom says, quote, not as under the ancient law the priest ate a part and the people a part, but one body and one cup is set before all. 
All the things which belong to the Eucharist are common to the priest and the people. Unquote. The same things attested by Augustine in numerous passages. Section 49. But why dispute about a fact which is perfectly notorious? Look at all Greek and Latin writers. Passages of the same kind everywhere occur. Nor did this practice fall into desuetude, so long as there was one particle of integrity in the church. Gregory, whom you may with justice call the last bishop of Rome, says that it was observed in his age, quote, What the blood of the Lamb is, you have learned, not by hearing, but by drinking it. His blood is poured into the mouths of the faithful, unquote. Nay, four hundred years after his death, when all things had degenerated, the practice still remained, nor was it regarded as the custom merely, but as an inviolable law. Reverence for the divine institution was then maintained, and they had no doubt of its being sacrilege to separate what the Lord had joined. For Galatius thus speaks, quote, We find that some, taking only a portion of the sacred body, abstained from the cup. Undoubtedly let those persons, as they seem entangled by some strange superstition, either receive the whole sacrament, or be debarred from the whole. For the division of this mystery is not made without great sacrilege, unquote. Reasons were given by Cyprian which surely ought to weigh with Christian minds. Quote, how, unquote, says he, quote, do we teach or incite them to shed their blood in confessing Christ, if we deny his blood to those who are to serve? Or how do we make them fit for the cup of martyrdom, if we do not previously admit them by right of communion in the church to drink the cup of the Lord, unquote. The attempt of the canonists to restrict the decree of Galatius to priests is a cavil too puerile to deserve refutation. Section 50. Thirdly, why did our Savior say of the bread simply, quote, take, eat, unquote, and of the cup, quote, drink ye all of it, unquote, as if he had purposely intended to provide against the wile of Satan? Fourthly, if, as they will have it, the Lord honored priests only with his supper, what man would ever have dared to call strangers whom the Lord had excluded to partake of it and to partake of the gift which he had not in his power without any command from him who alone could give it? Nay, what presumption do they show in the present day in distributing the symbol of Christ's body to the common people if they have no command or example from the Lord? Fifthly, did Paul lie when he said to the Corinthians, quote, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, unquote, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. The thing delivered he afterwards declares to be that all should communicate promiscuously in both symbols. But if Paul received of the Lord that all were to be admitted without distinction, that those who drive away almost the whole people of God see from whom they have received, since they cannot now pretend to have their authority from God, with whom there is not, quote, yea and nay, unquote, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 19 and 20. And yet these abominations they dare to cloak with the name of the church, and defend under this pretense, as if those antichrists were the church, who so licentiously trample underfoot, waste, and abrogate the doctrine and institutions of Christ, are as if the apostolic church, in which religion flourished in full vigor, were not the church. Chapter 18 of the Popish Mass How it not only profanes, but annihilates the Lord's Supper. There are twenty sections. Section 1 By these and similar inventions, Satan has attempted to adulterate and envelop the sacred supper of Christ as with thick darkness, that its purity might not be preserved in the church. But the head of this horrid abomination was when he raised a sign by which it was not only obscured and perverted, but altogether obliterated and abolished, vanished away and disappeared from the memory of man, namely, when, with most pestilential air, 
he blinded almost the whole world into the belief that the Mass was a sacrifice and oblation for obtaining the remission of sins. I say nothing as to the way in which the sounder schoolmen at first received this dogma. I leave them with their puzzling subtleties, which, however they may be defended by cavilling, are to be repudiated by all good men, because all they do is to envelop the brightness of the supper in great darkness. Bidding adieu to them, therefore, let my readers understand that I am here combating that opinion with which the Roman Antichrist and his prophets have imbued the whole world, these, that the Mass is a work by which the priest who offers Christ, and the others who in the oblation receive him, gain merit with God, or that it is an expiatory victim by which they regain the favor of God. And this is not merely the common opinion of the vulgar, but the very act has been so arranged as to be a kind of propitiation by which satisfaction is made to God for the living and the dead. This is also expressed by the words employed, and the same thing may be inferred from daily practice. I am aware how deeply this plague has struck its roots. Under what a semblance of good it conceals its true character bearing the name of Christ before it and making many believe that under the single name of Mass is comprehended the whole sum of faith. But when it shall have been most clearly proved by the word of God that this Mass, however glossed and splendid, offers the greatest insult to Christ, suppresses and buries his cross, consigns his death to oblivion, takes away the benefit which it was designed to convey, innervates and dissipates the sacrament by which the remembrance of his death was retained. Will its roots be so deep that this most powerful act, the word of God, will not cut it down and destroy it? Will any semblance be so specious that this life will not expose the lurking evil? Section 2. Let us show, therefore, as was proposed in the first place, that in the mass intolerable, blasphemy and insult are offered to Christ. For he was not appointed priest and pontiff by the Father for a time merely, as priests were appointed under the Old Testament. Since their life was mortal, their priesthood could not be immortal, and hence there was need of successors who might ever and anon be substituted in the room of the dead. But Christ, being immortal, had not the least occasion to have a vicar substituted for him. Wherefore he was appointed by his Father a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, that he might eternally exercise a permanent priesthood. This mystery had been typified long before in Melchizedek, whom Scripture, after once introducing as the priest of the living God, never afterwards mentions, as if he had had no end of life. In this way Christ is said to be a priest after his order. But those who sacrifice daily must necessarily give the charge of their oblations to priests, whom they surrogate as the vicars and successors of Christ. By this surrogation, they not only rob Christ of his honor and take from him the prerogative of an eternal priesthood, but attempt to remove him from the right hand of his father, where he cannot sit immortal without being an eternal priest. Nor let them allege that their priestlings are not substituted for Christ as if he were dead, but are only substitutes in that eternal priesthood, which therefore ceases not to exist. The words of the apostle are too stringent to leave them any means of evasion. These, quote, they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, unquote. Hebrews 7, verses 23 and 24. Yet such is their dishonesty that to defend their impiety they arm themselves with the example of Melchizedek. As he is said to have, quote, brought forth, up to they say, bread and wine, unquote. Genesis 14, verse 18. They infer that it was a prelude to their mass as if there was any resemblance between him and Christ in the offering of bread and wine. This is too silly and frivolous to need refutation.
Melchizedek gave bread and wine to Abraham and his companions, that he might refresh them when worn out with the march and the battle. What has this to do with sacrifice? The humanity of the holy king is praised by Moses. These men absurdly coin a mystery of which there is no mention. They, however, put another gloss upon their error, because it is immediately added he was, quote, priest of the Most High God, unquote. I answer that they erroneously rest to bread and wine, what the apostle refers to blessing. Quote, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, unquote, quote, and blessed him, unquote. Hence, the same apostle, and a better interpreter cannot be desired, infers his excellence. Quote, without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better, unquote. But if the oblation of Melchizedek was a figure of the sacrifice of the Mass, I ask, would the apostle who goes into the minutest details have forgotten a matter so grave and serious? Now, however they quibble, it is in vain for them to attempt to destroy the argument which is adduced by the apostle himself, viz., that the right and honor of the priesthood has ceased among mortal men, because Christ, who is immortal, is the one perpetual priest. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26 three states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.